Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 24, How to Learn RPG Design. Recorded by Caleb Stokes at Gen Con 2013. Presented by Jason Pitt and Mark Diaz Sherman. Hi, so uh, my name is Mark Diaz Sherman. I'm from Magpie Games and the Indie Game Developer Network. This is Jason Pitt. He's from Genesis of Legend Publishing and also a member of the Indie Game Developer Network. And we're here today to walk you guys through um, some RPG design stuff. And I'm going to want to be really transparent just about what our goals are today um, and also a little bit how we're going to work. So first, um, our biggest goal is for you to walk away today with some very actionable items about designing your own role-playing game and figuring out whether role-playing game design is something you want to spend more time doing. Uh, we also want you to understand some of the lessons we've learned. Obviously, we have long, long, long discussions about what we've done right and wrong, and we're happy to meet you at the bar later and talk over beers about all of our mistakes and triumphs. Um, but at the very least, we want to send you out here with some idea about what it's like to actually do this and what, what, you might, what kind of questions you might ask in the future. We also want to send you away with specific resources, and Jason put a lot of time and effort into gathering the resources on this DVD, but we're also available on the internet, Google Plus, or Facebook, for you to consult in the future if you have questions. We're really happy to do that, and we want to welcome you, and a lot of this whole thing is about welcoming you to a community of people who sometimes sell games for money, sometimes just make games they love, and spend a lot more time than is profitable or smart or e-wise <laughs> working on these awesome experiences that we hope to share with everybody else. Okay? So what we're going to do to try to get that stuff across, all of that agenda, is for us to spend about 10 minutes each talking about our experiences in role-playing game design, what we, how we got started, what we learned from those experiences, then take about 20 minutes to talk about uh, the, the sort of resources, 15, 20 minutes, resources that we found to be very useful, um, and then finally have 20-ish minutes available for questions. So if you have questions, um, you know, please hold them to the end so that we can make sure and try to just, like, get through the program, first half, two-thirds, and then at the end, we'll definitely be super excited to hear from you about what you might, what kind of questions you might want to want to tackle. Is that cool with everybody? Awesome. Yeah. Awesome? Great, cool. So um, we're just going to sit because it's weird for us to, like, stand and, and hang out, but um, unless Jason's going to stand. I'll, I'll stand. All right. I for the dynamic. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> for the dynamic. Um, so my name is Mark Diaz Truman. I, uh, in addition to being the co-owner and lead developer for Magpie Games, I'm also the systems lead for the Firefly <coughs> RPG that just premiered here at Gen Con through Margaret Weiss Productions. So um, I've done some work in the field that's been very, very, very indie, um, very much about, like, you know, working in my basement, basically, on an RPG that I don't know if anybody was going to care about. And I've done work that's very, very um, mainstream. The Firefly RPG is all about, um, you know, finding a design that's going to appeal to Firefly fans and, you know, bring people to the system maybe have never role-played before. Um, I got my start basically two years ago at Gen Con 2011. Um, I had been role-playing for a long time. I ran uh, a LARP, a Werewolf the Forsaken LARP, for like four years um, just like every every other Sunday for like four years. Um, I played D&D when I was in middle school, but I had very much the same background as a lot of gamers where I had played very traditional games and always hacked things. I'd always been like, well, I don't like this rule, so I'm going to change it. Or, you know, this thing in the LARP doesn't work because it's a LARP, it's not a tabletop game. I'm going to spend some time working on making it a better LARP. And uh, earlier that year, uh, let's say like February or April of 2011, um, my girlfriend and I talked about, like, well, what if we did, like, a comic? Or what if we did something together? She's an illustrator and an artist, and I'm a writer. And we thought, like, that's a really cool pair. We could do something really interesting. And we took a look at doing a comic, and we're like, wow, it's a lot of work to do a whole comic, especially for her, that she would have to illustrate every single panel. And, like, we, we've never done anything before. That seems like a lot. And so we started talking about other things we did. And I was like, you know, I've been thinking about designing a role-playing game. What if you did all the art? You do all the art for the role-playing game. It's a lot less art than it would be for a comic, and I'll do all the writing. And... Um, that seems, it seems almost funny in retrospect, like, well, that is like a million times more work than a comic in some ways. <laughs> but at the same time, it's something we felt like we knew what we could do. So we came to Gen Con, we came to a panel exactly like this one, and we met some like awesome resources and, and, and people who love this kind of industry and what, and what we did, and we asked them questions about what worked and what didn't, and went home, put up a project on Kickstarter. This was back in 2011, so Kickstarter was very new. We had never heard of it before. Put up a project on Kickstarter in October for a game called The Plays the Thing, 
the Shakespearean role-playing game about actors trying to change the script of the show that they're in. So Ophelia is like, wait a second, I don't want to die. I think I'm an important character. Well, roll some dice and see if you can make that happen. After um, Game Shop, we'll get back to that. Yeah, that's true, yeah. So I, and I had, I had uh, participated, thank you, I had participated that April when I was kind of thinking about doing this in a, in a project called Game Chef, which we'll talk about later as a resource. But I designed the first version of the plays the thing in like a week. It was 3,000 words, very small, very compact. And I took that draft and expanded it into about, oh, 25, 30,000 words with some supplemental materials to be about 40K. Um, and got about $5,000 of backing from Kickstarter backers. We asked for 500, we got 5,000. It was a pretty wild ride for us. Like, wow, that's crazy. Um, and put out our first game that following year at the beginning of 2012. Um, I learned a lot about role-playing game design, both like in terms of what it actually takes to move a game from start to finish, but also about the publishing, getting the art ready, all of that. Um, there was a day where Marissa, my co-owner and, and girlfriend, was thinking about doing the layout herself, and we started to talk with people whose layout we really love, and they quoted us some prices, and we were like, oh, screw this, let's just have them do it. Like, These people are pros, they know what they're doing, and we can totally take some of the money from the Kickstarter and make that work. And there was this kind of moment at which we were like, wait a second, we're paying people to do our design and like make it look awesome and we got the book and it's beautiful and we just it really felt real right it's not just like sort of like i've got some word docs and people play my game but like we're actually going to tell a printer to print 500 of these books or a thousand of these books um, and that moment was really huge so when we went into the next year and we did game chef again uh, in april of 2012 um, i wrote a game called our last best hope which is about a group of people who are trying to save the world from a terrible crisis like Armageddon or Sunshine or Deep Impact or The Core. It's a little bit B-science movie where you're like, we're going to fly to this asteroid and blow it up with a nuclear weapon. But also like pretty emotional where like the characters have people they care about and they're trying to save all of humanity not just like kick down a dungeon's door and steal people's stuff. right? Like, but like really trying to save everybody on Earth. Um, and because we had finished the last Kickstarter, Marissa was like you should do another Kickstarter. And I was like um, okay, let's give it a shot. And that Kickstarter raised $12,000, uh, had about 360, 400 backers, um, and we were able to produce not just the Our Last Best Hope book, but also an expansion book with additional missions and playsets and a short story collection. So that was the project I was working on pretty much through the fall. And the game that I had thought of way back in the beginning is a game I'm still working on, still tinkering with. It's a big game, and the smaller games that I've written in the meantime have served me really well to learn more about design. So that this last um, couple of months when the Firefly team needed a new systems lead, I was invited, um, it was like in May, uh, to, to help finish up the system that Cam Banks, the designer who'd been working for Margaret Weiss for a long time, had, had pretty much laid out. And I was asked to come in and help finish up the, the system and get it into the exclusive. Uh, some of you might have picked up the exclusive over at the booth, but that, that draft was something that I helped put together and finalized for the exclusive. And now I'll be working on the core book for Firefly um, this next couple of months for it to be ready for February. Um, and remember that if a game comes out of February, like it's got to be done months in advance of that to get through the approvals process, to get through printing. So my next couple of months are going to be pretty busy putting together everything for Firefly, and especially listening to the feedback from Firefly fans who play through this, this sort of version. So uh, my experience is fairly broad in the sense that like I've done trad stuff, I've done indie stuff, I am a business owner outside of doing game design, which has been a big help to me in terms of knowing how to like manage money, manage budgets. I, I own a tutoring company in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where we're from, that, that like basically taught me how to like run a business and get things delivered on time. It's also given me an opportunity to work with other designers like John Wick uh, on projects through their Kickstarters. Uh, he just did a project called Wicked Fantasy, uh, which raised about $50,000 on Kickstarter as a Pathfinder supplement. And I do like business management for him and help him move the, from the design process into the publishing process. Um, and also, uh, I'm doing a Wicked Fate conversion. If anybody's a Fate fan, I'm doing the conversion to uh, the Fate engine for Wicked Fantasy. So I'm working on a lot of different systems. I've, I've left out some freelance work I've done as well. Um, but all of it has been with the idea that I take on projects that I think are interesting and small enough to get done. Um, because I really worry, as you can tell from my project that has not gotten done in two years, about taking on such a big project that I never make any progress with it. And I know from talking with a lot of people who have done design for a long time, that one of the largest obstacles, I think, to finishing a design is that you take on a challenge that you're not yet ready for, right? That not because you are incapable, but because there's a lot of value in learning how to incrementally build up to a success. So if you're working on a game that you think is gonna be 500 pages, and it's your first game, 
and you've never published anything else, I would strongly urge you to think about what a 50-page version of that might look like. As painful and as gut-wrenching as it might be to cut it down, I think there's a lot of value in, at the very least, stepping away from your big, huge white whale and thinking about what other smaller fish you might catch to make sure that you know how to use a fishing rod before you go out and try to capture the biggest thing that's ever been caught. Because I do believe that as you sort of build up, that there are always bigger fish and more ideas um, that, that are gonna come along. And one thing I tell a lot of the people that I work with and do consulting for is that this is not your last game. It's not the last game you're gonna play. It's not the last game you're gonna design. It's not the last game you're gonna publish. If you choose for it to be the last game, that's up to you. But there's nothing about the universe that's gonna make this your last game. So stop acting like you have to have it exactly, perfectly, totally right. Because everything you're gonna learn here is gonna help you the next time you have an awesome idea. And so a lot of what I hope you take away from my story is that even by starting very small with projects that generate very small amounts of funding with very few number of backers, you have 100, 150 backers, you can eventually move to working like at a, either at a major trad house where you're, you're, you're helping out with projects that I'm like, I'm doing the Firefly RPG, it's amazing, it's awesome, I'm like totally honored and flattered and still pursuing projects that I think are exciting on my own terms, and that I actually feel like, yeah, I could publish a 300-page book now, and I know what that's like because I've helped other people do it. Right? And I think that's, if anything, what I hope you walk away with today is a sense of, what kind of project do you think you can get done in the next six to nine months? Because that's the project you'll actually finish. And with that, I'll kick it over to Jason. So I have a lot of similarities and a lot of differences in how I got into design and how I got to this point. I started off hacking and designing White Wolf games, little fan-made project to make an unauthorized, unlicensed supplement for Demon the Fallen. Lovely game. So I made my most egregious errors there, but there were plenty of them. Then I chose a white whale, the Spark role-playing game. So I started this and started my company in, I believe that was in 2008, 2009. Um, I've just formally published it this morning at 10 in the morning. Yeah. Uh, after a successful Kickstarter, it's already in all my Kickstarter backers' hands, but um, this is my formal launch today. So you'll see that's um, 2000. Let's be generous and call that 2009, so it was only 2009, to 2013. That's not an insignificant amount of time. So I chose to go for a very large target, throw myself headfirst into it, and learn the necessary skills of swimming so I don't drown. Um, it taught me an incredible amount. Um, I'm, I actually did everything from... Design, writing, some editing, dealing with editors. Of course, you have to deal with editors. Uh, we'll get back to that. Um, to doing uh, art direction and doing the layout. And doing all the publication, printing, marketing, shipping, Kickstarter management, uh, and the like. So I just th did as much as I possibly could, specifically so I could learn these skills. But that's a long and pretty slow process. Four or five years. And as I was nearing the finish line, my credentials and my knowledge base was good enough that I started freelancing and doing pieces for other people. A year or two ago, I started working on a hack for Evil Hat, contributed a setting for the Hillfolk uh, RPG over at Pelgrane Press. Go buy one. Or two. I've worked on a handful of other projects based on the skills developed working on my white whale. Now, how much is a white whale? How much is too big to handle and it's, I was very lucky to succeed. 34,000 words. 208 pages. We're not talking 500 pages traditionally published book. I barely made a 200 page book and I'm happy and overjoyed that I managed to do that Herculean task. Even if you're planning on aiming high, realize that aiming high is 100 or 200 pages. 50 is smart. In the process, I went to every panel and convention I could get my hands on. All of your CDs actually have copies of the RPG panel design cast, which is mostly me just attending panels and seminars and recording them on how to learn to design, how to design games. 
So you've got about 20 episodes of my recordings that I used, panels that I attended, to learn the craft. I just spent the past four years, and a good half of that time was just dedicated to getting up to reading enough, playing enough, and broadening my horizons. Okay, so totally that gives you some context for both where we're coming from, but also just some idea of what your path might look like as you try to pursue this. I think both Jason and I consider ourselves to be very, like, we are small fish in a very big pond. We, the guy who was here on the last panel, Matt McFarland, uh, worked for White Wolf for a number of years, and uh, he's amazing, great guy. I used When I was in college, I used to read his blog to learn how to run games, and now he's like a colleague. I'm like, that's amazing to me, right? Yeah. Like, you're like when, when he joined the independent... The game developer network. I actually emailed a friend and was like, "Black Hat Matt just joined my game, my thing. It's so cool, Black Hat Matt, right?" Because like this was somebody I really respected. So what we want you to walk away from today, like I said, is to think of like us as being like a fairly low rung, a rung that absolutely like you can reach because we have not done a ton and ton and ton of work. But we have done is blazed this trail in terms of like what it means to produce games in 2013, not in 1992, right? Like in 2013. In the environment that we're in, where indie publishing houses have a lot of like power and ability to get stuff out, and in a place where like we recognize how difficult it is to finish things, and that finishing stuff is one of the biggest obstacles that anybody that's in this room has thought about doing an RPG really faces, and that it's not about whether you can get a publisher. Getting a publisher is not the hard part. The hard part is whether you can crank out the forty thousand words it's going to take for you to finish the game you want to do, and whether you can convince yourself that two hundred thousand words are not yet necessary because you'll get to that game down the road. So to that end, we want to give you a couple of ideas, products, resources that we think are important for you actually doing this work. And I'm going to kick that off by, by saying something that's so obvious that it should just be something all of you are already doing, but I know it's something that I have often uh, not done well, and so I want to share it with you um, in the hopes that you will pursue it, and that's to fill the tank. Okay? So if you're out there designing a game, I think the number one resource you need to be building is to play a lot of games. Play a lot. You should know the industry. You should know what's out there. Okay? And that means that you should have some sense of what are the big movements that have gone on. Not because you have to prove your credentials to anybody, but because there are people who have done a lot of the work that you want to do and solved a lot of the problems you want to solve. And you are free to take and steal and use their tools as long as you do so in a way that makes them better or more interesting or innovate with them. And a lot of them would be willing to give you a license to run their system and use their system for your setting if it's the setting that you're interested in. Or lift one specific mechanic if it's that mechanic that you're interested in. And that means that you have to make time, not just for sitting and thinking about your own setting, but for pulling together groups of people to play, to going to cons and playing games and talking with people, to watching movies and TV and reading books that you think are the kind of settings and things that you want to do. If you don't have that grounding, if all you do is design games, I think it would be very, very difficult to call yourself a designer because it's, I think it's very hard to design in, a, in isolation without any reference to what other people are doing. For me, I see many design communities around the US. Uh, there's one in Seattle, there's one in New York, there's one in Western Massachusetts, in which many of the best indie games that I know of have come out of, and it looks like just one or two people are producing them, but once you get to know the story, you realize actually there are three or four or five designers that live within a space where they can actually communicate regularly, and that's hugely important. So if you're by yourself, if you're not on Google Plus talking to people, if you're not on Facebook, if you don't know anybody locally to where you are, you're already in the hole in terms of being able to produce games because you don't have the social connections that are going to prompt you so people say, hey, Jason, how's that game coming? Is it actually coming along? Or somebody to say, hey, I saw this thing that you might be interested in that's a deal on publishing books. Or, hey, this other game is doing some of the things you might want to do. If you're not connecting with other people and playing games and reading and doing other things, it's very difficult for you to fill the tank enough to actually be motivated to get things done. So it seems so obvious, but I think it's really core to actually doing this work. You stole reading games. Curses. Um, <laughs> reach out and communicate with your fellow designers. New designers, experienced designers. We're a small, friendly industry of people who are really passionate about making games. If you ask a designer, hey, why did you do this little mechanic in your game? I love your game, and why did you do this? We're all gearheads, and we'll go, oh, we did this for this specific emerging property which arrived after playtesting after we did this. 
they'll be happy to talk about their babies and to teach you and to guide you within reason. The best tools right now in 2013, Hello Recorder, uh, are Twitter and Google+. Twitter especially, it's the water cooler. Pretty much all the freelancers are going there, and uh, most of the publishers are also on Twitter. I'm at Genesis of Legend. Add me. Contact. Talk about what you're doing, what you're aiming to do. If you have a problem, ask. I'm having a problem with this. Does anyone know, have advice? And I might happen to know about this random little indie game that came out of uh, that came out in 1992 that happened to have a perfect relationship mechanic that models humanity perfectly for that specific esoteric random stuff that you have a hard time finding yourself, but we just have it stuck in our heads. So, yeah, communicate. Reach out and ask. So, um, some more specific like technological resources that you might use, some things that I personally use. So first, I have a program called Scrivener. Which is, a, which is a writing program. Um, and it's, it's useful for writing fiction, but it's actually also useful for writing RPGs in the sense that you can rearrange files very quickly without editing like a Word document, right? So you don't have to like copy and paste a million things. You can just say, oh, this, this rules explanation, I need it to be like three spaces earlier in this chapter. So I just move it and it's done. Like I move the whole file within the system. Scrivener's, I think, pretty cheap. It's like 30 bucks oh, or whatever. Yeah. And it's, it's a really great resource for just keeping yourself organized. Um, I've done some projects where I've just written stuff entirely in Word, especially like if I've been assigned a freelance project and I'm just like, cool, I got 10,000 words, let's just kick this out. But if you're managing anything bigger than I think like two to 5,000 words for your first time, like get it in Scrivener so you can say, I'm going to write 500 words on X, and then that 500 words is done and you can move on to the next piece. Um, yeah, Scrivener includes things like each category can have a target word count. You can say, I'm putting 300 words into this uh, character for this setting that is going to drive this piece of fiction. Yeah. And I, it keeps I, you honest. Yeah, it keeps you honest. And I think by that same token, things like Google Documents to share things with collaborators, finding collaborators and sharing things over Google Documents very quickly is important. Um, I, I hate getting Word docs where I have to like open a deal with stuff. If somebody could be like, look, I wrote this little mini system. Here it is on Google Documents and send it to me. I'm like, that's awesome. I love this and this. I'm commenting here and here. And it just like lets you work with other people more fluidly. Um, those kind of technological tools to keep yourself organized, I think should be judged though by the rule of, is this taking up less time or keeping me more organized or is it just something I can putz around with to avoid writing, right? Because that's ultimately what this is about. Yeah. Did you write anything today? Um, and Scrivener is a great way of checking whether you wrote anything because it says at the bottom, 20,000 words. And then the next day you're like, wow, 20,002 words. I did not write anything today. That goal of like getting something written today is really hugely important. And these tools, Google Docs, other things, they help you collaborate and move towards that goal. And I think that that's the, that just to kind of frame the technological discussion overall, it's not gonna design your game for you, but it can help you break, like get out of the way so that you're not wrestling. Because those days when I'm like, oh my God, Microsoft Word just crashed for the fourth time and I have to rewrite that 300 word section. That day kills me, right? So like anything that can get that day to go away, I'm all for. But be careful with technology to not let it become a trap, a time trap for everything else that you should be doing. So in the realm of technology, my brain just shot off. If you have something else on Sure. <laughs> so, so I do a lot of Kickstarter fulfillment and advising. Um, I, like I said, I worked with John Wick on Wicked Fantasy, which was a $45,000 project with like more than 1,000 backers. Um, and I think that there's a couple of things that I would recommend in terms of actually like fulfilling things when you get to that point. The first is that you should check out Lightning Source. Lightning Source is a really pretty solid printer with very reasonable prices on printing black and white, especially black and white books with color covers, which is what a lot of indie RPGs are, but also bigger books as well. Um, you want to be very careful about ordering too many books. Like that's the number one thing that sinks companies is honestly that they decide, oh, I'm just going to order 2,000 books of this product no one's ever seen. Right, great. So that's $10,000 tied up in your $2,000 2, books in an industry where $10,000 will make or break you. Also, how's your inventory cost? Right, exactly. Um, yep. Full disclosure, we are both designers and publishers. These are two right. different hats. We are wearing both. Just be advised, we're also yeah. giving, you, we're giving you publisher advice and designer advice. Yeah, yeah, that's so, true. But, but even if you're just publishing, like, think if you... Then you, you can ask your publisher to do the work. Yeah, you can, you can have your publisher smart. do the work, but even then, like, there are going to be times where you're like, I yeah. want to print up 20 of this little game. 
right? I'm a designer and I just want to like cross that boundary for a day and come back. And I think knowing that Lightning Source exists is really smart. And knowing, I think knowing that you're not a publisher or knowing like, I don't really know how many of these copies are going to sell, like live with doubts, right? So like if you're going to invest time and energy into paying people for art for your design or doing something else with your design that's going to cost you money, like live with doubt and test it. See if people are interested. There's a guy at our booth who's selling a game called The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, which is about cats that defend humanity uh, from elder gods, like the world from elder gods. Adorable, right? It's five dollars in the booth, right? And I think it's a fantastic product, great art, great game. Um, but like he specifically put that product together to think about, well, are people actually interested in this? Was this something I should pursue further? I think that's really smart as a designer as well. It's a good lesson to think about, like, oh, I I've shown this to a couple of friends. Did they really like it? Did they play it without me? Or is this something that I like have to jam people down people's throats? And being really honest with yourself involves being smart about like the investments that you make. And I think Jason's right to point out publisher and designer are not the same hat, but oftentimes you're they can be. They don't have, to, have to be. Yeah, they don't have to be. But oftentimes you do end up wearing both. And I think knowing about some of those resources is really valuable. And I'll turn that into two points back back. Publisher and designer can be two different hats. If you are just wanting to design and your passion is designing, that might be the thing. If you want, if you like businesses and marketing and reaching and reaching out to people, you might want to dive into publishing and partner with a designer. It's possible in some cases having a partner might be the right move for you. I didn't do it that way. I dove in head first, but it also took me five years. So... Find out where your passion is and use that as a foundation of how you're going to be moving forward. Partners are also have their own challenges, have communication. It's always an issue. So be aware there's pros and cons of any approach. What I was trying to say before uh, it fled my mind was public domain. There's a lot of good resources out there that you can use. Public domain and creative commons. If you're planning on selling the book, Make sure it doesn't have a non-commercial clause in there. Beware of the share alike or no derivatives clauses. So that's Just probably, that's look into like this. It's like its own conversation yeah. in terms of how those specific details work. But, like, but overall, just be careful. There are things. Read up, do some research, but there's a lot of public domain uh, resources out there as well. And public domain, bold, spindle, mutilate, do whatever you want. So like an example of that is for the Kickstarter video for our last Best Hope, which is all about saving humanity. Uh, Marissa and I pulled uh, free footage from the International Space Station of the Earth, which made it, and then cut it with music that we purchased for like $30 from this website. And then Marissa did a voiceover for it using iMovie. And we put together this little video where she narrates about how these meteors struck Earth, and now there's one more meteor that's gonna wipe everybody out. And it looks like there's like meteors going off because there's all this weather and stuff. And like, it looks awesome. And I was like, I can't believe we found free footage. That's awesome. So yeah, there's a lot out there that you have to be willing to fold, bend, you know, mutilate, like get it to where it needs to be. But it's way cheaper than me, like, I don't know, shooting footage of the earth. Uh, yeah, <laughs> clearly, clearly, clearly better, right? So, um, um, so I think it's a really good resource. Specifics on, uh, these are Creative Commons mostly, uh, The Noun Project. I believe I've got links in there on the DVD, but for anyone who's listening, The Noun Project. Um, they're a great source for icons and whatnot that you can use in play uh, for your designs, even if they're only placeholders. Placeholders are good. Don't worry about art when you're still figuring out how your resolution system works. Totally. Um, I would say maybe the last thing, and then I think we should probably move to some questions so we have plenty of time for that because I know it's important, is to seek out specifically diverse partners. Right? So I'm a Mexican-American game designer, and I know very few uh, Mexican-American games that, that reference sort of my part of the world. Like White Wolf does, has done a, a decent job of like setting some, some, like some settings there, right? So like the White Werewolf book used to have a Rockies book, and the Santa Fe was one of the, the spots that the Pure, one of the werewolf groups, was supposed to be in. And that was really refreshing for me, because almost never did I see anybody that looked like me, that talked like me, that came from my background. And that's proving to be a real problem for a lot of designs and a lot of, a lot of settings, is that the settings are, have been produced mostly by a pretty one sort of perspective group. And that perspective is awesome. Lord of the Rings is, is great. Great, great, great story. It's awesome. But if, if you are not seeking out diverse partners, I don't care who you are, you do not contain all the diversity that you might want to include in your audience. 
you should be thinking about how you can get people to the table who don't look like you, think like you, act like you, to, to talk about whether what you're doing makes any sense. And that especially goes for male game designers, uh, thinking about how women might perceive or think about or be a part of their games. And for white game designers to think about how minorities might think about being included or not included in your game. Um, and it's a sensitive topic that a lot of people don't necessarily think about or want to talk about, but it's not something that I'm saying like, don't do your game, you suck because you're a white male. It's more like, hey, uh, white male, you want to contribute to this community. That's awesome. This community is getting more diverse. Would you like a larger audience or a smaller audience? If you would like a larger audience, seek some partners who can look things over and say, you know, this part here where you have Africa controlled by apes, sentient apes, that's kind of offensive, right? That's, that's a little awkward. I find that weird, right? And if you, if, if you hear from other people differently, wonderful, that's good, you have many different perspectives. But if you sit in your closet and you never ask anybody else but you and people who think like you and act like you what, what they think of your setting, then that might be a problem. And if you can go to people who are partners and say, hey, this is my idea, I want to see what you think about it, and they point out that the second edition AD&D book does not contain a any illustrations that are not white males, not one, zero. There are no, there are not even princesses to be rescued. There's nymphs. I think gender neutral. I don't even like, <laughs> like. There's, there's not even a princess to be rescued in that book. That's how male it is, right? Like you can save yourself a lot of time, energy, and heartache, and build a broader audience for the game that you want everybody to play, right? We'd all like pretty much everybody to try our games. That it takes so little to build those relationships, but you have to intentionally do it. You have to intentionally go to people who aren't like you and say, hey, this might not even be for you, but could you just check it out and let me know what you think? Not even like look for offenses, but like, what do you think of it? Would it be something you want to play? And if you only talk to people like you, you're really doing both yourself and the greater community of the service. Yep. Um, this one verges on other issues, but system matters is a watchword of a certain community. The story games community, which is one of one subset or sort of strain of design that came out of the Forge, is uh, their mantra is system matters. You, what, you, what your system does will affect how people play the game, how the players of the game will be acting, and in turn that will strongly affect the experience that comes out of it. For instance, there's a lovely uh, game nominated for the Diane Jones that uh, was a successful nominee, um, was Dog Eat Dog, which the system forces people to fall into the role of uh, colonialism and of the oppressor and the oppressed. Um, and it's the system that does that. You can't escape because the rules cause a certain experience. So consider that. As I say that, there's other communities of design. The OSR community is a different community of design. They have a lot of innovation, and they go in totally different directions from where the story game people are, are going. And there's people who don't fall into either category or fall into both. So ask around about the various communities of design. Find games that you love and read into there, find out where they got their content from, and just do some reading. We're all gamers here. Uh, we like reading game books. I mean, let's be honest. So, so I think that's a nice time to transition, because I think that what I, what I like about what Jason said there is that there is a community for you, or what, what Jason said, there's a community for you. There's, some, there's a group of people who think sort of the way you think, and while I, I do think there's huge benefits to being diverse in your partnerships, there's also another huge benefit to finding people who agree with you on some basic principles. <laughs> like, does system matter or not? Or do I write settings? And if so, what kind of settings, right? And looking for those people is really valuable because you need resources to do this job. Like, if you think you can design an RPG by yourself, I think you're kidding. You're kidding yourself because you'll never do it all by yourself. You might be the guy whose name is on the cover or the girl whose name is on the cover that says, yeah, I wrote this. Writing it might be the thing you do by yourself. But I'll tell you that with any design I've ever done and anybody I've ever known has ever done, there are conversations that happen either online or at 2 a.m. at Steak and Shake where I'm like, dude, 
this is what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think? And somebody else comes back at me with like, that's dumb for these reasons. And I'm like, yeah, those are really good reasons. <laughs> like, it was dumb. Uh, but it helps me move on to the next place I need to be. And literally, like at Origins, I was wrestling with this issue for Wicked Fantasy about aspects. And I was with Lenny Balsera, who's one of the guys who wrote Fake Core, uh, and was like, man, I have this problem. And like at two in the morning outside like a barbecue food truck, he was like, oh, here's how you solved it. Obviously. How did I not see that? And finding those people is really valuable. So we want to be those people for you as much as we can in the next half hour. And we're happy to extend that conversation afterwards and to direct you to communities that might help. But we'd like to turn it over to you to have a chance to ask One more that, that has to be said. Iterate. 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 I shall reiterate. Games are a process of iteration and refinement. You run a game. You play test a game. You tr change it around. To, you play test it. You change it around. You play test it. Don't imagine you're just going to create the perfect game on your first draft, because trust me, there's going to be something that you totally didn't expect that's going to come out of playtesting, and your playtesting is 90% of the work of game design is testing and iterating off of your initial design. So, iterate. And, so, so, and, yeah, and to that effect, sometimes things are really broken. Like my first draft of our last Best Hope... When we play tested it, we didn't make it all the way through the play test. Like halfway through, I was like, all right, that's call it. Like, that's it. I've, I've seen enough damage. Let's let me, let me fix things and I'll come back. So it's, it's okay to have things be pretty rough. Um, and in fact, again, this goes back to my like, do what you can. Like, you, if you're not coming to this con, you're a game designer, and you haven't come to this con with the idea that you might snag four people who want a game and try something, whether it's 15 minutes of a resolution system or like a full session of your game, you're missing out. This is the best place in the entire world to meet people who might be interested in sitting and playing a game with you for two hours. So iterate early. Don't just iterate, but iterate early when you're like, hey, I have this idea. Yeah, let's try it today. Right? I have this piece. Right. I have one procedure for making a star system. Right. Well, try what you, that. What do you think build about that? that? See if that works. Right. If that works, build off of it. Yep, exactly. So let's turn it to you guys and yes. see if we have some questions that uh, we can answer. Although, Any questions? Raise your hand. Uh, first one who raised the hand is back there. Hey, yes. I'm Chris. Thanks Hi, Chris. for being here. When starting out, what were the pitfalls that you ran into that you think we're going to run into starting out? Cool. So the question was, what are the pitfalls that new game designers are going to run into that, that we ran into? So I think maybe I'll name one and maybe Jason sure. can name one just to kind of keep a focus. So um, my first pitfall was assuming that a successful play test would mean people would want to play they're two very different things, right? I think an RPG book has three functions. Um, and I think about those functions as related to dog toys. So there are dog toys. Dog toys are really weird products, right? Because who buys the dog toy? People. Who plays with the dog toy? Dogs. It's a really weird product, right? It has to look good to people, but also be good for dogs. And in some ways, gamers are like... They like have different sides of their brain. And I include myself here. What I buy, what I think looks interesting at the store is not the same thing as what I think is worth playing, right? And so I buy a game, and I'm like, oh, this looks cool. And then when I go down my list of RPGs I want to play that day, I'm like, well, that one I'll skip, right? And we've all done that with games that were like, man, I'm totally going to run that someday. Just like your dog is like, thank you for bringing that toy home. I'm never going to play with it, so it's going to sit over there. And the box you brought home, I'll just run around with that all day, right? So when you have a successful play test, you're like, great, that game worked. It doesn't necessarily mean people are actually going to play it. Right? And I think that one thing that you really need to focus on as a new designer is like getting it in people's hands who either don't know you or they know you but they live somewhere else and they can run the game and see if they have any interest in running the game a second time. It doesn't have to be like they love it and they think it's the best thing ever. But like ask them realistically, like, would you play that again? If the answer is like, yeah, sure, to your face, then that's a good sense that like maybe this isn't actually grabbing anybody. And that you should actually kind of work out a little bit more until people are like, so can we do that again? Like, can we, can we play that again? Like, you're home for summer, or you're, hey, you're in town. Do you, can we just, like, play that real quick? Like, that's the kind of reaction you want where I think you've really got something. And maybe that's not your first game that does that. Again, that's totally cool. But that's what you kind of need to be thinking about. Differentiating mechanics working from people wanting to play. Um, and a pitfall I fell into. When I came into this, I thought, okay, so... The rules are, the system is, when you roll, pick up a die, you roll it, and then you lose hit points. Guess what a rule is? Now you get to speak. Now you have to add a creative contribution. Um, 
GM advice, procedures. These are all things that I didn't even realize were part of system. They are. And they really shape design. My game is, what, 30% procedure, 20% advice, but this is all part of the system and it guides the experience because rolling three dice it will only get you part of the way there, but it's only a part of the whole system. Yeah, I, I, got, I guess I got it. There's a, there's a part there that I want to make sure we highlight, which is that GM advice, like how you run your game, assuming it's GM, there are GMless games, but in general, like advice for running your game, that's like a pretty big part of the game. Like, if you want people, I think these two points work really well together. If you want people to play your game, you're going to need to make it possible for them to know what to do. And even some of the best games that I've ever read or ever played, I really only fell in love with them after I watched somebody else run them. And it's really, it's really a difficulty for our industry, is like, how do we use video and other tools to do that better? But we're still wrestling with it. So do your best with it. Don't, don't beat yourself up too much about it. But yeah, like your system is the whole, the whole thing, not just the, not just the part that says, when X happens, roll Y. Yep. Other question? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, when you, you were talking about your first Kickstarter, I think I got these numbers right. You said you, you walked into about 3,000 words and then expanded to about 30,000 yeah. words. Did that expansion happen because of the Kickstarter, before, during? Just I'm wondering what you what you showed to the backers to get them moving. Yeah, so for the backers, I just showed them the 3,000-word draft okay. that was published on the Game Chef website. Um, and I guess there's a good time to talk about Game Chef. Yeah. So every year there's this contest, and we, we, we almost joke that it's a contest, a competition, yes. called Game Chef, in which you're given a couple of uh, like words or pictures that just inspire you. Four and ingredients, you're, and you're asked one to theme. Yeah, you're asked to 14 days. You're asked to Go. Turn, you're asked to turn out a draft that's like 3,000 words um, of a completely playable game. So not like, and here, reference my 30,000 word manuscript, like 3,000 words start to finish, that's what you have, that's what you can do. Um, and I think it's a great process for everybody because it gets you off your butt and makes you finish something. And it's huge and it got me to finish something. And so I had that draft available with some art that Marissa put together and a plan for what the whole game would look like. Um, and I think that was pretty much all I had when we did that first Kickstarter. That said, like I was, I was already writing it. It's a little hazy for me. For our last best hope, I had about ten thousand words done, and and said like, look, if I'm going to continue this project, I want to know are people going to play it? Are people interested in it? And I used Kickstarter to find that out. Other people, like how many people? Did anybody hear back the fake core Kickstarter? Do you have like a couple? Okay, cool. Uh, so in the back, what's your name? AJ. AJ. So what'd you get from the fake core Kickstarter before you, like, when you backed? Oh, that one I said. Five dollars, and what did you get for that five dollars? I don't remember. Like, like, you, you I, remember? I had to go. To to, so the, yeah. <laughs> so the cool thing about the fake core Kickstarter was that you put your five dollars, like AJ did, in, and you get the whole game. Like they were like, here, this is the oh, finished great. game, right? Yeah, that was it. it. Yeah, awesome. and like, and like, you didn't have to, you, the reason you don't remember is you didn't have to wait. You were like, hey, I put my five dollars in, I got the whole game. Yeah. The, those are two opposite ends. Like I'm like, hey, this is my idea. Do you want to back it? Right. And fake core is like, hey, here's a finished game. Do you want to copy? Right? Anywhere in there is appropriate for Kickstarter, in my opinion. Some people would disagree and say you need to be more towards this end. The danger of being more towards the I have an idea end is, first, you need to be really clear with your backers about it. Like, I, this is where I am in the process. And two, then you have to be really dedicated about getting that game out. Because until you do so, everything else on your plate is, needs to be secondary yeah. to honor those backers. Um, and so I think, I think it's good to kind of be in the middle where you have substantial things to show them. Perhaps you've written the entire game and it isn't laid out, or you've written the entire game but you want to play test it more. Um, although the further you get into that process, the more safe backers are going to feel. Yeah. Um, for example, I followed the fake core model, and I, my game, Spark role playing game, yay, buy it. Um, I had my Kickstarter, I had, had my text complete. The only things that I needed to do is get my final art, layout, print, ship. Because that was ooh, probably about five months of hell, just doing that. And I was terrified that I'd be leaving my backers in the lurch even longer. But that's one extreme, um, going the paranoid route. So I think that you can have a great success by doing it earlier in the process, as we've seen off your two successful Kickstarters. Yeah, I think I think the disadvantage of having it all done, and this wasn't true about Fake Core, because Fake Core is like a 10-year-long project, but one disadvantage of having it all done is that then your backers don't really have anything to contribute at the level that they might if you came with some more flexibility, right? Yeah. Um, and, and your backers for a Kickstarter project, 
they're like your best friends, right, in terms of design. They'll help you spot errors, they'll help you find stuff that doesn't work, they're like the, the best set of editors you could ever ask for. Um, and they, uh, if you come, I think, with too much done, you don't give them a chance to really contribute. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's really like trying to find that point where you're like, you know what, I think this is good the way it is. I think I would be happy if it was published as it was published now, and thinking about getting that out to backers. You can also use other forums and Google Plus and other things to get out earlier drafts and get feedback. Right now I'm working on a, a game called Star World, which is based on the Apocalypse World engine. Um, it's sort of like a Battlestar Galactica, Star Trek kind of hack of the Apocalypse World. And uh, that I'm doing pretty much completely open. Like I have people who comment on every version of the game as I work on it, and already it's gone through massive changes because I've gotten some really critical feedback. And I'm like, great, yeah, I'm glad I didn't do a Kickstarter for this off the idea with like a half a dozen things put together because this is the kind of projects that take me a long time to work on. Got a back-to-back workshop, so I want to make sure I've yeah. got your guys' contact information. I feel that's kind yeah, of yes. important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There should be contact information on the CD, at least for me, and I can point you at. Yeah. Okay. Great. Awesome. And we're all at Booth um, Five Seventy One Indie Game Developer Network. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and stack the cards. Yeah, and, and available on Google Plus or Facebook or Twitter, like. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the back, AJ. I read a, a PDF document that released that uh, Ron Edwards wrote uh, a couple years ago, and it explains narrativism, simulationism, gamism, etc. He also talks about this is a pre-Kickstarter world. The idea of charging for your betas and your alphas. Ashcan. Yeah, exactly. Like, I was wondering if you guys think that the way the market is now and your experience, that's something that we could also look at. Yeah, totally. No question. I mean, like, Dungeon World is a great example of that. They put together a red book, which was, I mean, you know, they, they might, I mean, I don't want to speak to them, so I don't want to say that was their plan, but it could very easily be perceived that Dungeon World Red Book Edition is a beta of the Dungeon World Final Book. And they sold those red books, and I wish I had one. Like they're collector by that. They're and lovely, they're super cool. Shut up, Chase. So I didn't, I didn't really understand what they were selling, and I was, I was very new. Right, this was two years ago at Gen Con, and I was like, yeah, I, I don't know, I've never heard of that game, so whatever. And like, really regret not picking one up because they were awesome. They were really cool. And then you know, like a year and a half later, they put together the Kickstarter, and today the game is out. It's amazing, great game. And also like, at Booth 571. Also at Booth 571. And I will tell you that with Star World, there's a really good chance that because I'm so invested in, like, I want it to be perfect. It's an Apocalypse World game. It needs to be really tightly tuned. Like, it's not sort of messy and big and open. Like, I want it to be really, really, really get that experience. And I've had enough experience as a game designer now to, like, give myself limits for that kind of deep exploration. Like, I will almost certainly put together some sort of, like, Academy edition of Star World that will be, like, the basic kind of structure for the game. And then see what are people playing it? Are people interested in it? Do they like it? Do they like the art? Do they like what they've seen? And if the answer is no, then I will be very thoughtful about that critique. And if the answer is yes, then that gives me a green light to go ahead. What I would say is that as a new designer, I'd worry a lot less about charging and a lot more about interest. Right? Yeah. So don't worry so much about charging for stuff, although that's a good display of interest, but like get it out there and see if people care. Then move forward from there. I had a question. Um, so as as RPG designers, I think in my head, at least, I, I picture RPG design as a slightly different beast than, than board game design in that yeah. you're giving your RPG to a group of people to interpret you know, their own ways. Um, <laughs> well, in, yeah. in, uh, in what ways do you feel you can sort of influence people who you may never meet to play the game the way that you want it to be played or you expect it to be played? Clarity. Explain. This is the big problem with the industry is that people... You get a build, a lot of games where the designer can run an amazing game with this text and these rules. The designer never wrote in how he did how he ran this game. Um, uh, lots of anecdotes on that. So, clarity and explanation and polishing English or whatever language you're publishing in. I had to learn a lot of. Uh, to improve my grammar, to improve clarity so people would understand what these rules actually were and what this comma meant. So little things like that. Yeah, so I, I have a couple thoughts that kind of lead to mind. The first is that in some ways it doesn't matter that much, right? Like what matters less about whether they're playing your way is if they're having fun. So like if ultimately they're not playing your way and they're having a good time, I would say it's still a huge win. And that the range of what your game will produce in terms of interpretation is a little bit like a religious text. There's one Bible, but there's a lot of religions that come from that Bible, and people seem okay with that. Right? And I think that's that's valuable. Um, the second thing is to be really explicit about how you how you want them to run the game. 
like I think GM advice is is undervalued and mislabeled, right? Like figure out how to tell them what you want them to do, not because you say do it my way because I'm so smart, but because like because you can say do it my way so that you will get the experience that will work. And I would point you to Apocalypse World and Monster Hearts yes. as two books that have done an amazing job. So much that when reading them the first time, I was like, I totally do that. But now that you've given it a name, I feel more ready to do that. That's really important. And I think there's a lot of places where they're like, um, I think it was uh, Robin Laws said, get rid of the word should. Don't ever say should. The GM should? Okay, what does that mean? The GM must or the GM can Right? Is it like, you can do this and it's, it might do these things and you should think about it? Or like, no, you must do this because it's the right thing to do for the game. Make a decision. Finally, I think that you should think about other ways to get across your ideas, whether it's video, whether it's like posting on forums, having a resource for people to answer questions. like Example make, text. Yeah. If you maintain like just a rules thing that's just it's like, this is how the system works, you're very unlikely to get what you want from players. I think you have to give them really in-depth examples that like go on for many pages that say like this is how the game functions, and or assume that your audience is fairly literate when it comes to RPGs and say it's like this or like that in terms of in terms of what they should be able to do. But there's no point in sort of being vague about it and then being upset when people don't know what you're talking about. You have to like really focus and be explicit and not like hope that they interpret the text the same way. But ultimately, I think you're right. They're interpreting it. And you have to be okay with how it goes within the bounds. Like set the bounds. Focus on the bounds. And sending a statement of intent is very useful um, to let people interpret the, in the same general direction you are. Um, I believe we have time for one more question. Well, me, hold on one second on that. So, so the Sorry. game The Quiet Year by Joe McDowell, no. Um, it's a great game, really cool game. It involves cards. It's a neat, neat thing. But the point is that Joe wrote that it could be played with five, but he listed on the box and we played from two for two to four because he knew gamers would push that boundary and five works but six doesn't. Right? <laughs> so like, so like they'll push it to five and be like, we're so edgy and we pushed it to five. And you're like, cool, that'll totally work. But six won't work. So if you put two to five, two to six or two to five, then people would push it to six and the game would break. So think, just think about like, what are you trying to get out of people and like plan for it? Actually plan for it. Don't just hope it's going to go well. So, last question. Uh, I just wanted to bring up, uh, don't forget the ransom model if you're starting off. Like, a really great way to do Kickstarter is if I make enough to make the thing, I give it away for free. And then people can't really whine if they don't like the product as much. Uh, and you are, like, generating goodwill for when you feel ready to do something like it is I mean, a model. I think, I think there's a lot of different models that would work. What I worry about with that one is that is that the threat, like the ransom is, right? Like if I don't get enough money, I'm going to burn this thing. Right? I'm not going to release which it Which is just sad. Which, is, which, which for me as a creative, like yeah. it kind of breaks my heart. Like it means that that thing that you spent time and love and energy on, it's never coming out. I, as a creative, I would prefer to give it away for free to begin with than to threaten to destroy it, right? So it's like putting a gun to the head of my own thing. It's not not a huge fan, but I, but I do think that it's worth thinking about what are you trying to do with this with this thing and finding if system matters for the game you're playing, system matters for the way you design, right? So think about what are you trying to get out of your design. And let's take one second here at the end just to just to reinforce like I've built you know a lot of my designs on the idea that I want lots of people to play them, I want them to elicit this specific thing, I want them to sell and for people to buy them and enjoy them. Other people design for other reasons. And I think one thing that's really crucial about this is we've given you a lot of advice from our perspective about what works best about finishing games, what works best about using the resources you have, what works best about being in the community. Jason and I are really happy with the kind of design work that we've done in the communities we've been a part of. But we also want to acknowledge that there are lots of other reasons to design. You might not ever publish. You might not ever release anything. You might only play with your home group. You might be interested in getting a job in a major publishing house as quickly as you can. If you have some specific things that you want to do, please don't walk away from this panel being like, I guess I just don't understand. No, do your thing. Totally do your thing. But just be clear about what it is you're going to do. And the advice and, and hopefully the, the, the resources we've given you today give you some sense about how to accomplish some of the things we've accomplished and some of the things we want to accomplish and that those are hopefully useful to you. So We'll be around uh, for some time after the panel ends. Um, I need to run, but he'll be around. Yeah, totally. Do you have any questions? Thank you. Otherwise, thank you very much for your time here today. Thank you. Thank you.